Namaste, everyone. Uh, it's nice to have you all here. Uh, our topic for today's talk is Siddhas as Warriors, Bairagis as Kings, Decolonizing Sanyasi Rebellion. There are a few terms here that I would like to share the meaning of before I start off with the presentation. However, even before that, I would like to introduce our organization to you very briefly. I'm part of a group which is called the Indian Council of Historical and Sociological Research. Our vision statement is there on the screen for you all to read, to create an intellectual movement to evolve the first ever independent articulation of the Indian nation about themselves, an authentic emic rendition of the Indian story. Our website is called ichsr.in. Please visit it. You'll find great articles there by my colleagues. My own email is here for you all to see. So I'll be talking about why we created this organization in the course of my presentation also. What triggered the formulation of this organization? So let's begin with our presentation of today. Siddhas as warriors, Bairagis as kings, decolonizing Sanyasi rebellion. We've all heard of Siddhas, Bairagis, and Sanyasis. They are an inherent part of our society. Though what has happened over a period of time is that the Sanyasis and Sadhus have been relegated to the fringes of the society. Whereas earlier, they used to be a central focus of a societal living. Now, when we look at Sanyasis, we wonder at what kind of a person they are. This is a part of my forthcoming book. And in this, I have analyzed a few key terms also, which I would like to share with you. The first thing that I would like to bring to your attention is historiography, the reading and the writing of history. See, history is not something that is a unilinear system of writing or understanding or sharing. It is also a very, very political act. So we've had in the past what is known as a colonial historiographer. Then we have the Marxist historiographer. Then we have the nationalist historiographers. What is the difference between these three? The colonial historiographers understandably have glorified their own race, their own supremacy, their own imperialistic ideas. That is how they wrote our history. From the 1950s onwards, we in India read what is perhaps best described as Marxist historiography. What the Marxist historiographers did was to read the history through class stratification and agrarian relations, which was very much required during those times because the colonial historian had obliterated and obliviated a lot of marginal groups, the small groups of people whose history was sidelined. Then we have the nationalist. However, all the historians had some drawbacks and one's effort should be to get a clear-cut picture of history by removing most false labels. Well, history, as I said, is a political act. Therefore, whenever one tends to write history or rewrite it, they always have an agenda in mind. So when I talk about decolonizing here, I have the agenda of liberating the knowledge, values, and beliefs 
of Indian readers and remove the taint or the imprint of colonial historiography from them. I also would attempt to kind of revision or kind of relook at the Marxist interpretations of the history of this very important event, which is known as the Sanyasi Rebellion. Now, it is important to understand that the monastic orders were looked upon as pre-modern constructs. However, in the post-independence era, various organizations like the Arya Samaj and the Sanatandhar Sabha tended to look upon them with a little jaundiced eye and they were not really a part of the political activism that we see in the pre-independence era. However, it is important to remember, as I said, that the sadhus have always been living in our midst, whether we see them or not. Swami Biswanand was a very important labor leader. In the 20th century, the Sampradaya loyalties vis-a-vis -vis the new religio-political formations were not very clear-cut because the Sampradaya loyalties always tended to hinge towards what is known as religiosity. Therefore, politics and religion, people thought, could not mix. This was not really true, as I would show you a little later in this presentation. Then we had Swami Sahajanand Saraswati, who openly vowed his allegiance to Mahatma Gandhi. However, uh, influenced by his own Vaishnava ideals of reform and equality, he broke away publicly from Mahatma Gandhi because they had dissenting views. What has also happened is that due to Congress distaste and colonial disdain for sadhus, we have tended to marginalize the sadhus as strange, something to be maybe photographed at religious congregations, but not really a part of our society. We have tended to put them in the sidelines. Therefore, we consider that their history need not be written. A very uh, important aspect of Marxist historiography is also their blindness towards the dharmic history of our independence struggle. Therefore, this is going to be an attempt to kind of correct that narrative and also help you see the entire freedom struggle in a new light. I would also like to bring your attention to Baba Ramchandra, who was a central instigator of peasant dissent in Avad between 1919 and 1922. So let's begin our journey of understanding how the sadhus have always been a part of our lives. They live amongst us, they walk amongst us. Why don't we see them? I'll talk about Guru Goraknath, who was a Shaiva devotee. You will find coins with Guru Goraknath's image in the coins of Royal Nepal. Prithvi Narayan Shah, who reigned between 1769 and 75, had coins minted with the image of Guru Goraknath. Guru Goraknath was also a master of paradox. So therefore, anything that is difficult or a little tricky is also known as Goraknanda. We have Nath sadhus associated with the Rajput kingdom of, kingdoms of Jodhpur and Marwar. Dhola, the famous epic that we hear in Western European Rajasthan, also mentions the Nath 
sadhus, as does the Nirankari Jagar of Karwan, you'd be happy to know that the sadhus and sannyasis are always revered in our country and especially so in the state of Uttarakhand. Therefore, the Nirankari Jagar invokes the Nath sadhus and sings the entire genealogy of the Nath Panthis. The Kalbelias of Rajasthan consider themselves as descendants of the Nath Panthis. Therefore, we find that the Naths existed in Punjab, Nepal, Uttarakhand, and Deccan. As I take you through a journey of the various sampradayas settled all over our country, you'll realize that we find sadhus, sannyasis, sampradayas spread all over our country as intended by Adi Shankaracharya. A very important aspect of Nath and Nathini Siddhas, yes, you have Nathini Siddhas as well. There are women Siddhas who are Naths. A characteristic uh, appearance of Naths and Nathini Siddhas is that they wear huge earrings, which are shaped like either kundals or slightly oblong versions of kundals through the uh, cartilage of their ears. The Nath Siddhas have been sharing the learnings of Tantra, Shaiva, Shakta, Vaishnava, and Buddhist texts. So their teachings are derived from all these texts. Nath Siddhas are renunciates and householders. They were corpse carriers, leather workers, washermen, oilmen, tailors, fishermen, woodcutters. So therefore, you see a lot of caste mobility in the Nath Siddhas. These were people who were ordinary, day-to-day -day folks that you see in your society. They were siddhas also, and they were householders also. This is a notion that many of us find a difficult, little difficult to digest or accept. However, this is the truth of Indian siddhas. Therefore, it is important to understand that when the British wrote about our sadhus and sannyasis, they could not see these various aspects of the life of sannyasis, their method of thinking, their lives as they were. Therefore, it becomes very essential for all of us to kind of relook at history from a little distance and try and read between the texts how things have been written, how things have been presented. It is important to see these things. You even find the mention of Guru Goraknath in Adi Guru Granth Sahib, Ram Kalikibar, Molla Pella. He says, Thus speaks Goraknath, the form of eternal truth. In the highest essence, Brahma, there is no form or shape. We find the reference to Guru Goraknath as the teacher who gave the meaning of Brahma, according to Guru Nanak Dev Ji. Therefore, Guru Nanaji quotes him in his own work. Now, I would take you very gently towards the Dashnami Sanyasis. Since we have focused on the Dashnami Sanyasis today, I would like to take you through their own life and their organization into various orders into a slight more detail than the other Sampradayas. It is important to understand that all the sampradayas have their own importance in our Hindu tradition. It is not as if one is more important than the other. If one is 
a martial order. The other one is focused more on bhakti. Then you have all the rasas in your life coming from the ascetic orders as well. So Adi Shankaracharya organized the Ekadandi sannyasis according to the Vedanta tradition into 10 different orders. They were called Giri, Puri, Bharti, Van, Aranya, Sagar, Ashram, Saraswati, Tirtha, and Parvata. Now, the Hindi names of these would tell you very clearly that Adi Shankaracharya wanted them to wander in these places in our country, which is adequately and abundantly populated by all these places, mountains, tracts, forests, seas, nature, pilgrimage. Therefore, all these orders were attached to four matas, which are enumerated in this slide. It is important to note that the Tirth, Ashram, Saraswati and Bharti, Dandi Sanyasis were Shastradharis. That is, their focus was supposed to be on learning. Whereas the Naga or Gosai Sadhus were Astradharis. These were the Giris, the Puris. So therefore, we see that Adi Shankracharya, when he envisioned the unification of the entire order of the ascetics in our country, he envisioned a very balanced outlook on them. He envisioned scriptural experts, then he expected martial experts too, because the dharma needed protection always. We have the militarization and initiation of sadhus and sannyasis at melas and tithas. Initiation in the sense, this one, the sannyasis take up their vows. During the Kumbha Mela, it is an important space, a religious space, a political space, and of course, a very dharmic space. The Dashnami sannyasis, who were militant, were known as Gosains and Nagas. These are the names of the Akhadas that the Dashnami sannyasis, the ten named sannyasis, belong to. Juna Akhada amongst them is the oldest one. While some say that Avahan may have been the oldest, according to my own conversations with some sadhus that I know, they say that Juna is the oldest Akhara. It is important here to point out that this talk is not just an academic talk. This talk straddles the academic as well as the sharing of lived experience of many sannyasis that I personally have known over a few years. I have had the opportunity of interacting with disciples of Swami Dayanand Saraswati, disciples of Swami Chinmayananji. I had the greatest opportunity last year in 2019 when I visited the Kumbh of meeting Mahamandaleshwar Swami Abdeshanand Giriji. I also am very fortunate to know two sadhvis whose work I will mention a little later in this presentation. We find that the Dashnami sannyasis associated with kings ever since their induction into their akharas. So we have historical accounts which tell us that this was so. Sister Nivedita's account of Nadan Tirthas tells us that Ukhimat took on military subjects by the orders of kings of Garhwal. Atkinson's Gazetteer, which is a source of a lot of history of Himalayan districts, says that Junakara has, an important, has important centers in Banaras, 
Niranjani Akhada has branches at Nasik, Ujjain, Haridwar. Sir Jain Sarkar has said that the Shamis associate with present day Uttar Pradesh. He mentions the names of all the cities where they are found. But why soldiering? They had amassed a lot of wealth. They had lent money to the Rajas of Jaipur, Avad, Raja of Bundelkhand. Let me point it out to you. When we talk of sannyasis taking up arms, as I said earlier, Adi Shankaracharya visualized them as militants for the protection of dharma, what was righteous, what was right. So why this contradiction about sadhus taking arms? We should not be surprised at this. Rather, one should take pride in people who upheld the power of dharma, even by sacrificing their own lives. So in a way, Sadhu's lives are not very different from those of soldiers. They endure long times of training. They endure hardships of traveling, camping, and they always obey the guru, the commander. So therefore, we see that soldiering was not an anathema to Hindu dharma. The Giri sannyasis were also traders of opium and wool and cloth. We find it in the reference that I have provided in this slide. They also achieved the suzerainty of Hanuman Hills near Faizabad as a grant from the king. They were armed retainers with the Nawab of Awadh. Gosai householders and traders were cattle breeders, bead sellers, money lenders, according to the reference provided in the slide. Madhusudana Saraswati in the 16th century rearmed the sadhus because we see that in those days the dharma was threatened and therefore he had to kind of reband and re-energize, reinvigorate the militancy of these ascetic orders. As you can see on this screen in the mid-17th century, the bands of sadhus and assorted holy men coalesced into larger groups, often numbering more than 10,000. What was their job? Their job was to protect temples, travel routes, and even towns and rival armies. Their job was to protect the, the places of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is an important sacred place a political place and also the axis of dharma. Therefore, the protection of sadhus was the most assuring one. In the 1757 invasion by Ahmad Shah Abdali, Hindu charts under the prince Jawahar Singh suffered severe bloodshed and 10,000 soldiers were slain, civilian population were slain, women were brutalized, children were killed. Vrindavan faced a similar fate, 20,000 men. The Patans told them, move into the boundaries of the accursed Jat and every town and district held by them, held by him, slay and plunder. The city of Mathura is a holy place of the Hindus. The massacre of the most peaceful sect, the peaceful sampradaya of sadhus, the Vaishnavas, was unleashed. In the Battle of Gokul, the Nagasadhus, numbering nearly 4,000, defended the Hindus 
and fought with the Afghans with matchlocks, spears, and swords, till half their number and an equal number of Afghans was slain. We also find accounts of sannyasis in services of Mughal rulers. It is important to note here that since they had no way to overthrow the Mughal rulers completely, what they did was make their own safe space within the army. And also they ensured special treatment for themselves and for a lot of Hindu population. This is not very well known and therefore people sometimes question, why is it that when the sannyasis allied with the Mughal rulers, do we call them as loyal to Hindu dharma? So one has to understand the mechanics, the dynamics, the diplomacy of the sannyasis also in these cases. These are some visuals from the 2019 coup. I did not capture them. I took them from someone. What I wanted to bring to your attention is this image, and then I'll explain this bit. This image, as you see, is the newest Akhara that presented itself in the procession of Shahi Snan of 2019. This is an Akhara of transgenders. Now tell me, where in the world would you find glorification? of transgenders other than in India. The Westerners have had a tough time accepting them, but these people have always lived in our midst. We, the common people of India, have always looked upon them with empathy. So the various narratives that you find of gender atrocities and of humiliating transgenders, some of them may be true, but by and large, we have held the transgenders in the greatest of respect. You have any holy occasion, any sacred occasion, any uh, celebratory occasion at your place, the transgenders would be there. So they have always been a part of our society. So you see that Kumbh Mela is also a kind of heterogenizing space for Nagas, for common people, for transgenders. Everyone congregates there. And the experience of Kumbh Mela is a one of oneness, of being part of a great civilizational ethos. Now, to explain these three terms, Peshwai is the entry of any Akhara into the Kumbh Mela. Every Akhara usually has a symbol. In case of the Nagas, it is a bhala. The Naga Sadhus are the first ones. If you see this picture, they are the first ones to proceed for the Shahi Snan. Given their association with the kings, their precedence in the uh, Kumbh Mela Snan is known as the Shahi Snan. Also, because they have been the axis of dharma, they have been the upholders of dharma through a long, long period of time. Therefore, they deserve this honor. Now, becoming a Naga in an Akhara is no simple thing. Other than these four very briefly listed things presented in front of you, as in they have to give up their former name and jati, they have to undergo a Panch Guru Sanskar, under which they take five Gurus. There is a Viraj home in the Kumamena in which they are initiated. But the rites of passage to becoming a Naga are something that not everyone can undertake. It is an experience which a Naga Sadhu related to me. It took him 30 years 
to become another sadhu. So when we talk of sadhus, it is important we remember the kind of tapasya they have undergone, the kind of knowledge they possess, and their history in our collective history. I also spoke of Bairagi kings. So there's an example of just two. They belonged to the Nirmohi Akhada and Nimbark Sampradaya, respectively. There is Mahant Rubdas, who was the ruler of Chui Khadan. He was earlier an enlisted person in the Hoslas of the Maratha army. Mahant Pralatas Piragi came from Punjab to Chhattisgarh to trade in shawls, and he assumed he was granted the Jagir of Nandgaon. They were cloth manufacturers. And there were sports people also. And to my knowledge, when Parladas Bairagi's descendants set up a factory of clothes in Nandgaon and also promoted sports in this region. How come peasants and sadhus associate with each other? I think I've hinted at this connection a little earlier. Now I would like you to look at it in slightly greater detail. See, the association of peasants and sadhus is not unknown. We had the German peasant war in which the priests led from the front in the year 1525. We have sadhus who are devoted to careful study of scriptures. And then there are, there are those who devote their entire lifetimes to arts and science of warfare. So armed monasticism, it is more than just a military and political cultural interest. Vaishnava and Shaiva, monastic soldiering. Yes, the Vaishnavas also joined the armed militant orders. It was a great way of equalizing the discrepancies in the society in the 18th century. Shudras were inducted into Vaishnava and Shaiva orders. This also lets us contemplate on infusion of Jat peasants into the Nanak Panthi community. It is important here to realize that while the peasants provided maintenance, sustenance, and care to the sadhus, sadhus in return provided the ideological support to peasants. Our country has never been one which is a unilinear, unidimensional, and a flat board kind of place. We have always had a myriad of nuanced readings, understandings, facets to our entire civilization. So the social setup of those years reflects the questions by advocating both attacks and manipulations on the social hierarchy by the British and before them, the Mughals as well. So therefore, I would like to focus on the militarization of the Dishnamis. The original disciples of Shankara, as you know, had learned to bear arms to fight the Tantrics, some Buddhist priests and the atheists, and the Mughals, of course. In the Sanyasi rebellion, we also read about Sanyasis with Fakirs. Now, in this presentation, I've chosen to focus only on the Sanyasis because taking into account the actions of Fakirs would have made it beyond the stipulated time. However, let it be said that the Fakirs and Sanyasis enjoyed a very mixed relationship. At certain places, they supported each other's 
at certain places, we also witness wars between them. Why? Because in the year 1659, this is just an inference to tell you how the Fakirs were treated preferentially to the sannyasis. The Burhana Fakirs of Balia Digi in Dinajpur, they were granted a sanad which says, wherever, whenever you wish to go out for the guidance of the people or for travel into the cities, I would like you to halt right there. Whenever you wish to go out for the guidance of the people, guidance here categorically meant conversion. Let it not be read otherwise. You have to be very clear about what you read, how you read it, how you understand it, whatever history you may read. Into the cities, countries, divisions, and all sorts of places, you like to go according to your free will. So they were absolutely free to carry out whatever actions they wish to carry out, be it guidance, with peace, or with the employment of violence, which is not unheard of in the history of our country. You will be entitled within the countries of Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa to confiscate as you like properties to which there is no heir or rent-free or peerpal or rent-free tenures. When you pass through any tract of the country, the landlords and tenants will supply you with provisions. No cess or contributions of any kind will be levied. So this must tell you very clearly that fakirs had a free hand in the Mughal period to convert, to confiscate, to exploit. Their history with sannyasis is another matter altogether. Sannyasis also did not take all this lying down. So we see that even in the pristine days of the Mughal power, an army of sannyasis led by an old woman calling herself Enchantress had at one time defeated the army of the Emperor Aurangzeb and made him tremble on his peacock throne at Delhi. So we have an instance of a woman sannyasi who defeated an army of Aurangzeb. This is just one page in a book. Not even a page, just three lines. So I wonder if there are many such instances which have not been written in history. This brings to mind a poem by Maya Angelou, which says, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but just like dust, I'll rise. So, we know that truth of this kind is very difficult to unearth after many years, but then certain indicators definitely guide us towards what may have been the truth. We just have to reconstruct it through intelligent reading and interpretation. J.C. Oman has said that the calendar of fairs and festivals of the sannyasis were comprehensive and accurate. How to time their devious wanderings so as to make them fit with the festal events of each locality within their annual round of pilgrimage to sacred places 
where on all important occasions they congregate in hosts and where they may be studied to advantage as regards to peculiarities of their costumes and external appearance generally. So the historians, these Western and European historians wonder, how do the Nagas, how do the Dishnamis, how do the various Sampradayas know when to congregate? Did we have calendars at that time? Of course we did. We had calendars. The sadhus had their own calendars. They could time their days, the months, the exact tithis of the various uh, auspicious days that they observed. So the British, in their blind belief that our systems were any less than theirs, in fact, quite on the contrary, our systems were far more advanced than theirs. Our knowledge systems, our traditions were much more scientific, still are than the Western ones. So this uh, little paragraph tells you of the uncertainty of the historians as to how they could time their uh, pilgrimage, pilgrimages, or how they could achieve this kind of accuracy. And their costumes also certainly sounded, looked strange to these people because they were not used to this kind of lifestyle which the sannyasis lived or the kind of appearance of our sannyasis. So a kind of oriental lens that blinded or that covered the eyes of the historians exoticized the sadhus, made them mysterious and therefore the other. What is important here is we have seen sadhus and sannyasis all our lives. However, their depiction in Bollywood films, their depiction in our own books, the NCRT books that the children study from day to day are not very flattering, I would say. Since I've taught this subject in schools as well, I found that these descriptions are rather... Uh, deprecating, degrading to the entire civilizational setup of our country. It is important also to remember the kind of colonial narrative that the British floated around to degrade the sadhus, their image, after they kind of dumbed down the sannyasi rebellion. You've always, you must have heard of this saying that, jaldi se so jau, baba this is not something that was part of our culture. We have always been reverential towards the saints. Why should we be scared of them? What harm have they done to us? It is the kind of colonial narrative that you have to be aware of and you have to share with your society that this defaming has to stop. In the Bollywood films also, one uh, sees very... Uh, compromising depictions of sadhus, sannyasis, and pandits. You have to be aware of why these depictions are there. What kind of learning are they giving to our children who are watching this, these movies with widely open eyes and taking in all that narrative? A history of Dashnami sannyasis, which we've looked at, but I would like to quote this bit for you all. Please just read it. So we see that the Dashnami Sanyasis were also landholders, traders. And where did they come from? They came from within the peasant stock as well. They came from the day-to-day -day people that we see around us. 
it is not as if there were some foreign people or the other as the british presented them to be what the british could not understand is their frequent movements to the pilgrimages they kind of were threatened with the frequent movements of the sanyasis because sanyasis just could not be put down by the british as they were the x factor the unknown factor the uncontrollable factor so whatever is uncontrollable for us we kind of try to make it smaller we try to break it up into pieces and we also try to make it not very important unimportant to be marginalized did the british supplant the moguls this is just a sidelight that i wanted to bring to you if you see the spread of the maratha empire this includes patna also this map does not show it but the maratha empire spread to patna also so when the british came in they did not supplant the moguls the delhi sultanate was reduced to this much on the entire indian map the pink that you see is all maratha empire hyderabad was under the nizam as i said the narrative from british accounts are reductive misrepresentative misleading so while uh, as i pointed out earlier the giri sanyasis cemented military alliances they also drew special privileges from these kings so therefore these alliances were ideological cultural and religious as they were material economic and social so they cannot be looked at in a unilateral or a one dimensional manner it was was important to be done at th those times and therefore the sanyasis did it now this is a very interesting thing that i noticed in the social media a few days ago and i thought i'd just bring it here because we are mentioning peasants along with sadhus here and of course peasants are an inextricable part of the sanyasi rebellion they went on to contribute for it the idea of india was it a gift of the british now let me take you through this description of vandeveer religious nationalism published in 1975 he says that most peasants and monks in british india were not immediately concerned with the national implications so first we are telling the people whoever was reading this book that people were not intelligent enough to think of these things for themselves it was a gift of the british that we understood that india was one let alone nationalist politics so therefore they did not know politics clearly oppressive foreign rule true enough despite gandhi's desire to attract the participation of peasants and monks in a mass based nationalism so this author tells us that the peasants could not think this for themselves and they could not even conceive the idea of oneness of the entire country of india and they could not respond intelligently to mahatma gandhi's call or nehru's efforts to lecture peasants on the meaning of bharat mata so the idea was really strange to them now as we go on in this ppt i'll tell you how the idea of bharat mata came about and you'll realize for yourself how false these narratives are which have been fed maybe to you or to generations before you or maybe currently also why maybe of course i see them still there in these textbooks why rebellion what was the motivation for the sadhus to rebel political motivation supremacy rebellion against muslim rule or against british adventurism was there a socio economic motivation where the have nots rise against their richer compatriots 
or without the help of outsiders to eradicate class distinction? Was there a communal motivation? Whether the Hindus or Muslims rose against each other or did they rise against a common enemy? Or was it simple brigandry? That, that is the, the narrative that the British have told us. The sadhus were brigands, the wanderers of Hindustan, the gypsies, the nomads. Was it like this? Let's see what happens. Now, when the British got the Diwani of undivided Bengal, what they did was this. They introduced a new revenue system in which the village was broken down into small units. So while a villager was answerable to the headman for contributing his share of the produce to the village, each individual, the farmer became answerable for himself or herself. They had to pay revenue in cash. While the sons or the farmers owned the lands themselves earlier, land became an article of transaction and Many of them law, lost their land holdings to middlemen. I would also like you to consider that in 1770, we have the Chua revolt to maintain legitimate land rights against the Zamindars. Then the weaver leaders, Bostam Das of Titabandi, Duniram, Nayanandi, rose against supplying material to East India Company, which levied exploitative conditions on them, that they had to sell all their material to the East India Company at diminished prices. They hardly had anything left to eat. Here also I would like to point out, which many of you would be aware if you've read this history of Bengal, which is a very, very tragic history, that the Kisans were forced to pay the revenue in cash. Now, they were forced to sell their produce to the British at very low costs for money, and they had to buy the same bag at exorbitant and prohibitive prices, which resulted in the famine of Bengal, which is known as the Chiaturir Manantar. We will discuss the various famines also, which the British Raj caused to India. These were all artificial man-made famines. But if you were to read Wikipedia, you will find a very uh, small description of some eight famines, which have been written as minor famines in our history. Please read them and read about the millions of people who got killed. Then the silk workers also rebelled. The Rangpur opium farmers rebelled. The Chakmas, the indigo planters. Now you come to know of the indigo rebellion much later, but then the seeds of it were sown right here. Therefore, I'm inclined to think of the Sanyasi rebellion as the precursor to many of these uprisings that happened. They were a kind of trigger for the rest of the rebellions, because all these people, all these people were closely associated with the sannyasis in their day-to-day -day lives. And we have to understand the sannyasi rebellion, not as a rebellion, not as a revolt, but as a people's movement. I told you about this. The new class of landholders came up who charged higher revenue and the revenue had to be paid in cash. So the irony is that while we were witnessing the rise of a new bourgeois in Europe, who were giving us the slogan of down with monarchy and land to the tiller, the British introduced statutory landlordism in Eastern India, including Greater Bengal. So while the British were practicing different policies in their own country, they were introducing something else in ours. 
So a very small indicator here about the increase in revenue from 1765 to 1766. Therefore, I would like you to ponder, was this action dharmic? Was this action in alignment with the policies or the governance that we had been under ourselves for many, many years? This is just a brief look at what the Sanyasi rebellion triggered. I'd just like you to have a glimpse at these. If you see the pointer, the Sanyasi rebellion, the Sanyasis moved from here, from Uttar Pradesh, Uttarakhand, Nepal, Bhutan, to Bengal. Then they spread downwards. Then they went towards Rajasthan. And ultimately, we have the 1857 revolution is the 163rd anniversary of the 1867 revolution. I would like to call it revolution because there are different meanings to rebellions, revolts, revolutions. If there are any students, I would like them to search for this themselves. For the rest of us, a very brief explanation of what a rebellion is, what a revolution is. A rebellion is an attempt to recast the structure and superstructure, as the Marxists would put it, or simply the political system of a place. A rebellion is unsuccessful, a revolution is a successful one. So I feel that if a rebellion triggered off so many of these chains, and which ultimately culminated in the 1857 revolution, I'm inclined to think of the Sanyasi rebellion more in terms of a revolution than a minor uprising, an, an insignificant one something that was localized, what we have been teaching our children, what have we been studying ourselves. Take a moment to pause and ponder. Now, let's take a look at this slide here, which say, talks about land reform. So we had peasants, we had Mahajans, we had the new landlords. Who were these peasants? These peasants were the disbanded mendicants from the army of Khagendra Narayan of Kuchbihar and also from the Mughal army. The disbanded mendicants from the army of Kagendra Narayan of Kuch Bihar settled in Dinajpur, Rangpur, and in Maimansingh districts. Now, these are the districts where we have the beginnings of the Sanyasi revolution, as I would be calling it now. Some Vaishnava sects also settled in Madhapur, jungles, and some of the disbanded soldiers from Mughal armies settled near Mahasthangar. Hastings has termed this revolution as plundering activities, depredations or ravages by the nomadic mendicants and probably tried to establish this by minimizing the gravity of the situation that the Bengal peasants have accepted British rule without complaint and have considered them as their to check this rebellion or this uprising. Hastings proclaimed that those who will be hanged with looting, charged with looting, will be hanged in their own villages. Their families sold as slaves and punitive taxes levied on the villages. But what effect did this have? This triggered off a series of very serious uprisings, which led the British into restructuring and rethinking their own policies. But this did not happen for a very, very long time. Their interest was purely profit at the cost of exploitation and whatever the cost they may levy for their own benefit. They were not concerned with our reforms or 
any kind of reformatory seal. These are some of the names that I would like you to look at who participated in the Sanyasi rebellion or revolution. Himad Bahadur Giri, Gamandi Giri, Majnu Shah, Musa Shah, Chiragali. They were intersectional skirmishes between the Sanyasis and the Fakirs, no doubt. However, at some places, they did ally and fight together against the oppression of the East India Company. This is a very brief account of the British records that contradict their own narratives. So I will not read out the entire thing. I would like you to read out these names very quickly, where the Zamindars and the company extorted exploitative revenue. And therefore, the peasants rebelled against them. Sanyasis fought a lot of guerrilla wars, and sanyasis also opposed. All the policies of the British, they never took them peacefully or lying down. Here, a very interesting uh, couple of uh, Bhavani Patak and Devi Chaudhrani who had Pathans and Biharis as followers. So I would like to draw your attention to the various sects and sections of society that were following the sannyasis in these uprisings against the British. The heterogeneity of the revolution makes it a people's movement. Devi Chaudhrani was a small zamindar, but she hid on boats and fought the British companies from there. Therefore, she also must have been oppressed by the British. So why would a zamindar side with the sannyasis? Because she herself was being exploited by the new system of the zamindari that the British had levied. Though the uprising has been called peasants' rebellion, the plight of hapless peasants has not been shown in records. So we find uh, just a line here or a line there describing how the system was put in place. So uh, even in the book chapters, you find land reforms, Monroe system, this system, that system. But what did actually they do to the people around has not been mentioned. I would understand if the colonial historians did this. It was a white man's burden to civilize the natives and therefore all was justified. But what has happened post 1950 is extremely questionable. And in fact, what has been happening or not happening since the change of government, the second wave of which is now in place is also questionable. Why haven't we changed these kind of records? Why haven't we changed the understanding of these records? Why haven't we unearthed more evidence from various places, which is maybe lying around, maybe in oral histories? They also have to be taken into account. In the Battle of Baksar also, the sannyasis left from the front. Himatkiri came from Bundelkhand. Sindhyas joined hands with Vijraj Kashi, Balwant Narayan Singh. They had the support of a very fiery Bhumij king called Fateh Bahadur Shahi, who gave them support right from Munger to Baksar. The kings of Betia, Yugal Kishore Singh, king of Hatwa, erstwhile known as Husepur, Fateh Bahadur Shahi, who later settled in Ujjar and Balia, opposed the Diwani. They also gave the reins of their armies to Himmat Bahadur Kiri. So sannyasis have always been leading these oppositions to the British authority right from the very beginning. Sadhus and kings associated very, very closely 
Fateh Bahadur Shahi used to live in Saranya Janpad, which is the area of Gopal Ganj, Chapra, Deoria, Gorakhpur. And he had to pay taxes to both Aud and Bengal because Aud was under the Nizam and Bengal under the Diwani now. So therefore, even he was oppressed and he demanded the support of the sannyasis in his army associated with them. Fateh Shahi managed to support, manage the support of Nagas and Nats of Gorakhpur. So we have Nagas and Nats also coming together. Begums of Awad and Chait Singh allied with him. Akharas of Prayag, Kashi and Gaya also supported Fateh Shahi. Balakgiri of Bodhgaya, Himadgiri of Bundelkhand played a pivotal role. Warren Hastings took out orders to capture Fateh Bahadur Shahi in an order. This is all on record. Aud also associated closely with Dashnami Sanyasis. Because the ruling dynasty may have been Muslim, but the populace was Hindu. Therefore, the sannyasis were a very, very important faction in the polity as well as the society of Awadh. Nawab Sabdajang and Mahendra Rajendra Giri, Anub Giri and Umrao Giri also associated very closely to protect themselves from the neighboring Sunni estates. So it is not as if the sannyasis have not allied with the Mughal rulers. They have but they have always demanded privileges for themselves and the Hindu populace through their authority, through their agency, within the structure of the Mughal Empire. Gosais and Meragis have been traders. As I told you about the Giri Sanyasis, so is with the Beragis, the Vaishnava Sadhus and the Gosais, the militant Sadhus have been traders throughout. This is an account that tells us about it. As I told you, the sannyasis were written down as gypsies of Hindustan. Hunter O'Malley gazettes call it a peasants and artisans rebellion. Sure, it was a peasants and artisans rebellion, but who was leading from the front? This is pondering. Footprints of the sannyasi rebellion. Where all did they travel in the course of rebellion? Initial three years, it was confined to Kuch Bihar and Dhaka, all districts of Bengal. Ramanand Goswami had say in the Nepal kingship, who was chosen as king, Ramanand Goswami had a say in that. The Dhaka factory, Rangpur weavers, salt workers, all rebelled against the East India Company under the leadership of sannyasis. Towards the north, you have Banaras, Sarane Janpat, then Jagannath Puri, Ukhimat, Joshimat in Uttarakhand, Puris and Giris from Thaneshwar, Bundelkhand, Marathas, Nepal, Bhutan. So we find the footprints of sannyasis all over this area. And I, as I pointed out earlier, though it began in the east, it traveled southwards, then to the west, and then to the center. So we can say that it was a very widespread rebellion and definitely not a localized one. And since it triggered so many other uprisings, I'm inclined to think of it as a revolution. And as a sociologist would say, perhaps a movement. Why sannyasis as leaders? Well, because this was a role ascribed to them by Adi Shankaracharya. Akharas and militarization went hand in hand. Intake of other castes into Mahanirvani, Nirvani, Juna, Bairagi and Nagasadhus meant a kind of cohesiveness in the society. So the sadhu space, the sannyasi, the ascetic space also represented a heterogeneous space. It isn't as if they were existing in isolation from the society. And the rest of the people were living on the on one side. 
Military training of the Sanyasis went hand in hand with the soldiers of Jaipur Royal House. Dadu Panthinagas also trained with them. Sindhyas and Holkars patronized Darshnami Sampradaya. So we have associations of Sanyasis with royal houses all the time. I would also tell you about the Jaipur House. Mahanirvani and Juna, Chet Singh Fort in Banaras. Mahanirvani and Juna Akhara get to stay in the Chet Singh Fort in Banaras. Marathas had links with Vaishnav Sampradaya. Therefore, associating with sannyasis was a way of state legitimation and patronage. This was also the period of liberation from Mughal political and ideological influences because the kings, especially Savai Jaising of the Kachwaha king of Ambeer, which is later known as Jaipur, he tried to revive ritual and Vedic Shastric worship. And therefore, it is important that the Hindu identity of these kings was also agentivized. It was asserted through these associations. Therefore, we say that the Sanyasi revolution was not an isolated incident. It went on for 30 years, nearly 30 years, I would say 38. Many sampradayas participated. The Madar Sanyasis, Majnusha, Musa Shah, Faragul Shah, are supposed to be descendants of Kanfata yogis. So while there were differences in the, in the religion of these people, they were Sufis and Ardhan, we can say that there were many commonalities. There were many meeting points as well. Himmatgiri, Chandankiri, Ghamandigiri, Balagiri, I've mentioned these names earlier. They led armies from the front. Bhavani Patak was degraded as a social bandit in the records, but Bhavani Patak was an important sannyasi. The Ramanandi, Gaudiya, these were traditionally Shastradharis. They were the scripture reading sannyasis who turned Astradharis along with peasants. Who has heard of peasants taking up arms? But in the measures, in times of desperation, of course, the peasants would take up arms. Who wouldn't to protect themselves? Then we have the invocation of Vande Mataram, Hail to the Mother. In fact, I should say Vande Mataram only and not Hail, because Vande is an intranslatable, an untranslatable. Vande means I revere, I worship. So we have the symbology of Bharat Mata. This painting here is by Abhanindranath Tagore, in which we see uh, Rudrakshmala, Vastra, Ghas, and Shastra in her hands. So Bhupendranath Dutt, according to Bhupendranath Dutt, the Kali Pujaris of Ramana in Dhaka sang the, the, the Vande Matra themselves. It is not as if it was a creation of Bankim Chandra Chatterjee only. He got this idea from the Kali Pujaris of Dhaka, Ramana in Dhaka. In Sarani Janpat, Eastern Yogi, the goddesses worship by saying Vando Mata Bhavani. So we see the, the trope of goddess. The image of goddess has always been very strong in our country. The kings were worshipper, worshippers of Durga. Durg, you know, the fort. So the protectress of the Durg was Durga. The Nath Jogis with their Shakta uh, lineage also worshipped the goddess. So we have a confluence of the Durga tradition, the Kali tradition, the Shakta tradition, of course, is the Kali tradition, the goddess tradition. We had Bankim Chandra, Chatterjee, writing the Anand Mat. Now, let me tell you a side incident here. He was 
uh, banished to some margins and labeled as a nationalist historian. And that is why he was banished. So there's a thought for you that nationalist historians were banished. Sister Nivedita also praised this painting of Abhinendranath Tagore. Some people, especially the women's studies people, find it jingoist, populist, mythic, hegemonic. Jingoist, too much patriotism. Who needs it? Populist, okay. It belongs to the majority idea. But I would like to draw your attention to the saffron robes here. They played an important part in reviving, in creating this image. Mythic mythology in Greece and mythology doesn't apply to India. We do not consider mythology hegemonic. These are four questions for you to answer for yourself. These are, these are terms that I'm leaving here for you to think. Was this image representative of this or was this image representative of all these? These are questions that you would have to answer for yourself. So the triggers for the people's movement, which I've been calling the Sanyasi rebellion as, famine, epidemic, migration of Muslim workers from Dhaka because the East Indian Company bought their product at exorbitant prices, laid their own policies and conditions on them, and they were deeply impoverished. Weavers, salt workers, opium farmers, indigo peasants, bandit soldiers, Muslim workers I mentioned here, Various tribes, now tribes is another word which I have a contention with, but I will not go into it. But for now, Bhumij, Paikas, Chuar, Chakma, Naiks all participated in this at one stage or the other. So I'm trying to think of Sanyasi movement as a people's movement because there was a commonality of injustice. There was a commonality of demands. Just go. That was the demand group. Well, in the sense that their aims were the same. Peasants and monks were not unconcerned with politics and their place in an Indian nation. Rather, their politics were locally defined, their concept of nation deeply embedded in Indian social and cultural history. So while you may have writings by people who tell them that we had no concept of a united India, we had a deep national and cultural consciousness. This is our idea of India. Second point. Though their brief engagement in the nationalist politics of India drew them for the first time into the narrow beam of historian searchlight, it was not the first time peasants and monks had combined to bring about social and ideological change. This is a small snippet that somebody sent to me and I was drawn to the name Verrier Elvin, whose books I've read myself. He was an eminent anthropologist, a folklorist. By his own admission, Verrier Elvin came here to lead a Christian life of Franciscan poverty. He did not intend to write folkloristic. And yet we have Jawaharlal Nehru giving him the authority to ban sadhus from entering Nagaland. So this is something that should draw your attention to that. What was the aim of anthropologists coming to India? What did they write by living amongst those people? There are a few things about Berir Elvin that you also should read for yourself. I will not go into them right now because our time is limited and kind of running out. So this person had the authority to ban sadhus from Nagaland. Why? 
lest we forget. This is a very, very painful thing that has scarred millions of Indians across our country. 1966, 300 sadhus were gunned down outside the parliament in the Indira Gandhi regime because they had demanded that the bill on cow's slaughter be implemented. 30th April, Bijon Setu massacre, 17 sadhus killed by communists in West Bengal. 23rd August, 2008, Swami Lakshman Saraswati assassinated along with four disciples on Janmashtami. August 15, 2018, Lajaram and another sadhu who was injured, Lajaramji was killed in Oreya in UP. A very recent incident, which was extremely painful because one video of this killing, this lynching was floating around, which I happened to see, and it affected me extremely deeply and as it must have done to many others as well, was the lynching of Swami Kalpagiriji, Swami Sushil Girijis. These were both sannyasis in Saffron, as were the others. They also belong to a subsect of the Dashrami sannyasis. 24th April 2020, Brahmachari Kalyan Swarup was attacked in Husharpur in Punjab. I told you about this. This is the image of the 1966 shooting at Sadhus. You recognize Swami Kalpa and Swami Sushil Giriji. These are just images I'm leaving you here with, which are very familiar to Indians. How threatening are they? Jai Hind, Jai Bharat. Uh, thank you. Uh, I want to know that is there any authoritative book which can uh, kind of give a glimpse of this uh, uh, whole stuff which has been pretty concised and has been put uh, very succinctly in, in one hour session. So any book which kind of gives uh, very good detail or uh, which can be used as a reference because many things we come to know from uh, scholars like you, many things, and that too when we get a chance. But uh, to make this more uh, uh, well spread across the uh, country or the community about these barriers and people who have kind of uh, given their lives for thousands and thousands of years, what could be the source? All right, Gyanendraji, one book that I would recommend definitely to you know, to know about the history of sannyasis is by Sajadunath Sarkar. It is called The History of Dashnami Sannyasis. And also, uh, particularly about the Sannyasi Rebellion, I have kind of put together it from various research papers, from my own meetings with sadhus and sannyasis, my own interviews. So, Sajadunath Sarkar's book is one that I would definitely recommend to you. There is one by Jamini Mohan Ghosh which should bring certain things to light, but then you have to read it with a very, very critical eye. My own book would be out in a month or so, and you're most welcome to read it if you like it, because I've put uh, inputs from various sources, at least about 60 to 70 different uh, research papers, 
20 to 30 books, which do not tell us directly about the rebellion, but the various records that I've gone through. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Thanks for a very informative talk. Uh, and you have really marshaled a tremendous amount of information in this one talk. Uh, I had a question and an observation. Uh, first thing uh, you had in one of the slides, a picture of uh, transgender uh, sadhus being uh, a part of the Kumbh and also being uh, in the sequence of the Shahi Snan, included in the sequence of the Shahi Snan. Now, I want to know from you, uh, the this nature of innovation into traditional lineage of sadhus, would you hold this as ideal? Although the contributions of the sannyasis through their, by way of their militant uh, engagement in preserving dharma at various uh, stages is also admitted, fact remains that the nature of their alliances with the political players has also been extremely questionable at plenty of stages. Okay, the first question was uh, the Kinder Akhada in the Kumbh. While I would say that, Smita, you are right insofar as the sexual identity, the pronounced sexual identity of the Kinnar Akhada has been uh, visibilized in the Kum. I would take it in a manner that, uh, yes, we needed to visibilize these people also. So how the thought process of including the Kinnar Akhada went into the Juna Akhada is a matter for the sannyasis to debate. We can only comment on it. And I feel that... Uh, including them in the Akara system was much required to give them a legitimate space and a visibility in the society. Secondly, your question was about associating with Abdali and many Muslim rulers as well. So while I've said that the, the sannyasis did make alliances which are very, very questionable, to use your word, I would say that they were carving out their own political space within the system. And therefore, we cannot discount their role otherwise. So one does not cancel the other. I think we have to take a very large view of history here and accept as things happened. We cannot whitewash things and neither can we paint them black or white. Vinko, uh, somebody was asking us, when will your book be out? Uh, in another month and a half. Okay. And it will be on Amazon or somewhere for... Purchase, I believe. Yes, uh, I have written another one which has not been uploaded by Amazon yet. So whenever Amazon decides to update their, their policies, it will be there in another month and a half. Yes. Yeah. So I was asking that uh, a question has come in saying that is the killing of sadhus due to accident or by design? I don't know the incident that is being talked about. So not clear about All that. Right. But that's the question. All right, so I'll answer it. The 96, 1966 killing of sadhus, if you're referring to that, it was no accident. There were direct orders of firing given by the Home Minister. If you're talking about the Palgar lynchings, the video shows us that the sadhus were handed over to the mob. So whether it is deliberate or not, it is for you to see for yourself also. I would also like to point out here that the Palgar area is notorious for Naxalites and the Christian missionary nexus existing in that area. So, whether deliberate or inadvertent should answer your question. It is uh, very simple that uh, during a 
the war or fight with the britishes all these people were united and they put consistent pressure throughout the movement for independence but when we are independent and it is our government by the people for the people how <coughs> come so much atrocities are being committed on these uh, people that is nazis and still they are keeping quiet why they cannot have their own movement how that the governments are not working when one uh, mullah is uh, harassed or somebody beats him there's so much of you and cry forget about the media i'm talking about the people themselves why they are not getting united and coming and putting pressure on whichever is the government i mean that's a really sad uh, state of affair that you are writing a history of say last uh, four, 200 300 years that this is how they were they were so brave but today in their own country when we are in majority and people are not even talking about them you know, forget about the people they themselves should come together and talk why that is not happening that's my question okay so ravikant ji why the government is not doing what it is doing is a very big paradox to most people and to me as well why the people are not coming forward yes certain groups have come forward see today's talk also brought to light the glorious history of sadhus too so you feel that something ought to be done for them so i would expect some sort of contribution coming from you as well in the sense of trying to change the narrative or educating your children your neighbors your friends about the importance of sadhus in our lives we have kind of normalized the killing of sadhus through a, a period of time we consider it as a not very big deal it is we ourselves who are responsible for this narrative so that once the narrative changes you will see a, a greater human cry from the public at large and of course the government will then be persuaded to react and of course since i said sanyasi rebellion was a people's movement so it was the people who brought the change so why don't we also come forward and do something for the sadhus help them out in our own way this uh, injunction is for you to ravikant ji 